Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Letters are the backbone of many biographies, often providing the most revealing insight and evidence of a subject's inner life. They are the gold that every biographer hopes to find. But letters can also be misleading, especially if they're written with a sense of posterity or of being read by others as well as the person they were intended for. That makes them altogether more ambiguous to decipher. In fact, sometimes letters are interesting for what they do not say. When Kate Grenville read the letters of Elizabeth MacArthur, she found the inspiration for her novel A Room Made of Leaves, a biographical fiction that takes liberties with the facts. Elizabeth MacArthur was the British-born wife of John MacArthur and a shrewd observer of the early days of the colony, as well as a very competent manager of her husband's business, farming sheep during his extended absences. Recently, Kate Grenville decided to edit a collection of Elizabeth's letters for readers to be able to share the raw material that fueled her imagination. So I thought it would be interesting to hear what Kate has to say about the Elizabeth we meet through the letters that have also proved of great interest to biographers. Kate Grenville, welcome to Life Sentences. Lovely to be with you. Are you a reader of biography by choice? Look, I think the answer is yes, but in a modified way. I like biographies that are actually about the writing of biography. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous. So, for example, I've just reread Two Lives by Janet Malcolm about Gertrude Stein, which is really a book about biography. It's a kind of meta, infinitely receding mirrors kind of book. So I find biography one of the more problematic forms of writing. And so books about it interest me much more than straight biographies. I cannot let that statement go. It's too damn provocative. What do you find problematic about biography, given that you are someone who takes fantastic liberties based on biography? Yes, but you will notice that I don't call my books biographies. Oh, no, I know. You, you're very, well, you're, you're a writer of fiction, absolutely. So does that absolve you? Well, I don't call them fiction either. I mean, the book about my mother, for example, I very carefully called it a story, not a fiction, not a non-fiction. Now, I would say that your book about your mother was sort of a hybrid between biography and memoir. And, and fiction. So okay. <laughs> if, something, if something is sufficiently hybridised, look, in botany, you'd call it a different species, or you would say, let's throw out the whole idea of species. If something's sufficiently hybridised, then it makes a nonsense of trying to categorise it. And I actually think that writing these days has gone beyond the old simple categories of fiction, non-fiction, biography. We have to have them. I mean, booksellers need to know where, on the, where in the shop to shelve something. Prize committees need to know which set of people are going to read it. But <laughs> both of those things are kind of unreal and slightly, they, they diminish what is in fact a wonderfully open-ended thing, which is simply called stories. Oh, I love the fact that you say that because it gives so much latitude, scope and permission. But I just want to persist for one moment with the idea that the book that you wrote about your mother was, at least in part, a biography of her. And I'm just wondering, in researching her life, which you obviously had to do, what did you learn, not so much about her, but what did you learn about biography that made you perhaps think of it as problematic? Look, I had a great deal of uh, resources with that book because mum had written lots and lots of bits of memoir. 
So my first thought was just string them together. That'll be simple. That didn't quite work because there were too many gaps. So I thought, that's all right. I'll just come in and fill the gaps. It'll be simple. That was a disaster because the two voices together were a really uncomfortable read. You don't want that kind of reading experience. So, look, I probably went through 25 drafts with that book and it probably wasn't until about draft 18 that I found the way it is at the moment. So what I learned is that a straight biography where you have to say things like, she would have done such and such, she probably thought such and such, no doubt she felt so and so, (laughs) that is a really clunky, it's not the way we want to hear stories. We want stories to be in the immediate present of the storytelling moment. But if you're writing about a real person and you don't say she would have felt, but you simply said she felt, you are then way overstepping anybody's right to be telling a story about another person. So that is the dilemma. Let's jump back in time then from your mother to Elizabeth MacArthur. Who was she and why did she pique your interest? Elizabeth MacArthur was the wife of John MacArthur, who is somewhat better known, In my youth, he was called the father of the Australian wool industry because he claimed full credit for breeding and starting to sell merino wool, which, you know, was the backbone of Australia's economy for many years. So she was the wife. And in the sort of primary school version of Elizabeth MacArthur, she was just this totally supportive, wonderful, uncomplaining, devout wife and that's all she was. I knew nothing about her beyond that and that frankly did not pique my interest. So my interest was not piqued until I was 50 and I was researching for The Secret River where I came across in a book of little excerpts of documents from a very early Sydney put together by Tim Flannery. I came across a tiny extract from one of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters She's writing home and she's describing the fact that the astronomer with the first fleet, who was in Sydney when she was, had been giving her some lessons in astronomy, which she'd asked for. And she says, I had the lessons in astronomy, but I mistook my abilities and I blush at my error. Now, that word blush, I mean, maybe I was overthinking, but that word blush leapt off the page at me. Because for a woman of that time and that class, I suppose, Those kinds of letters, I've read enough of that kind of, you know, those hyper-genteel 18th and 19th century women, to know that a blush, you know, a blush is a very private thing. It's actually an external revelation of something that you want to keep secret. You know, we blush when we're embarrassed or all sorts of things, but it's usually something we want to hide. And it's also a very physical thing. It's like the body is making this quite dramatic statement. And both of those things, look, I'm a novelist, so I immediately thought, ah, she's got the hots for William Dawes. (laughs) I just love the fact that your imagination is triggered by a word like blush, which to me, blushing, particularly in that era when ladies were meant to blush prettily, and were noted for blushing prettily. I mean, I seem to remember that from Jane Austen, who is an exact contemporary, is she not, of Elizabeth MacArthur, that I'm just astonished that you can build a whole novel around this involuntary physiological reaction. And we will come back to that because I do want to talk to you more about that phrase, I blush at my error. But for the moment, just staying with the physical, can you describe... 
Elizabeth MacArthur's handwriting and the physical appearance of the letters that you used as the basis for the novel and which you have now gathered into a collection? Her handwriting was was fairly readable, unlike a lot of 18th century writing handwriting, because she wasn't a lady. She had no pretensions to being a lady. She was actually the daughter of a farmer in Devon. But when her parents kind of one way or another disappeared, she was taken in by the local clergyman who had a daughter the same age as she was. So they learnt together from the clergyman. So what she learnt was a very workmanlike handwriting. It's not actually all that hard to read, except as she gets older. And particularly, you can usually tell the letters that she wrote by candlelight because they are much harder to read. The letters that are hardest to read, though, is where she was trying to save paper and therefore weight and bulk. And she did this weird thing called cross-writing, where you mm. write in a normal way across, the, you know, down the page, and you, you then, at the bottom of the page, you turn it at right angles and write, you know, perpendicular to the lines you have already. It actually, in a weird when I first looked at one of these pages in the State Library of New South Wales, I thought, oh, impossible, can't do it. Then I thought, well, actually, they did it, so mm. let's have a go. And amazingly, the human eye is like the human ear. It can filter out the stuff that it doesn't want. So actually, the cross-written letters, they look like a secret code, but actually they're quite transparent. I love the fact that you've used them on the end papers, or rather your publisher has used them as the end papers for the book, because it's really lovely to be able to see what you've just described. And it reminds me of the fact that I was talking a few weeks ago to Suzanne Falconer about Rose de Fresino's handwriting. And there the variable was that she was writing at times on board ship. And so, of course, she's writing in a fairly steady hand, except for the fact that the ship is rolling around. Look, it is it is tricky and even quite good handwriting you know, there were a couple of words, a really, one really important word in Elizabeth MacArthur's letters when I went to put them together, which I simply could not. I expanded it on the computer. I went away and came back to try and take it by surprise. I, tr I traced it myself from the screen of the computer to see if that told me what it was. Nothing worked. I then went to all the other places that had ever written about Elizabeth MacArthur to see if anybody else had quoted that letter, all of them, bar one, the Barnard Eldershaw book about Piper, had paraphrased it. And I thought, okay, I know why you've paraphrased it. You can't read it either. <laughs> so there's one word and you still don't know what it is. I still don't know what it is. It's in the letter where she's writing to John Piper and she's urging him to be sort of temperate when he goes to court. And she says, the very best thing of all would be for you to, to, for you to appeal to their somethings, mm. and they will certainly have sympathy for you. So it's a pretty important word. Barnard it Eldershaw is. thinks that it's passions. I don't think it is, but that's what I've used because I can't think of a better word there. But if it were the word passion, surely you would have seen because the P with a giveaway tail would have helped you. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Mm. With the, And, of course, Elizabeth MacArthur was still at the time when an S was sometimes written like a, like a T, Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of variables. Anyway, that was if if anybody if any of your listeners can think of what <laughs> word might fit there better than passions, please <laughs> let me know. 
Right, there has to be a prize for that. <laughs> now, in fact, your novel about Elizabeth MacArthur came out at almost exactly the same time as a major new biography of Elizabeth by Michelle Scott Tucker. Was that a blow to you? Was that of no consequence as far as you were concerned? Did you kind of find anything in it that you thought, damn? No. Uh, when I was, I mean, I've been writing that book about Elizabeth MacArthur for about 20 years. And at about year 17, I discovered that Michelle was going to write a biography. So I immediately got in touch with her because I thought this is, you know, we should at least get together and have a chat. And we had an extremely cordial, we got on extremely well. Um, And it was obvious to me that what she was doing and what I was doing was so different that there was no kind of problem. On the contrary, they would help each other enormously because I would be relieved from the duty of having to tell some of that biographical detail. And so it would kind of allow me a bit of freedom. So her book, I think, came out in the January and perhaps mine came out in the, was it the same year? I actually can't remember. I think it was. Might have been, yeah. But look, it's, it's never been an issue. Now, you've chosen in this collection that you've made of Elizabeth's letters, you've chosen 65. Out of how many? Oh, that's a good question. I probably did add them all up. It would be several hundreds. Right. And you've you've pruned them pretty hard. So how did you determine what to prune? Look, I never thought that I was going to publish a book of her letters. In fact, when I was publishing the, when I approached my publisher with the novel, the first thing he said was, is there a book in the letters? And I said, oh, no, don't be ridiculous. And I thought that for a long time because the letters in their entirety have interesting bits and, let's say, not so interesting bits for a current reader. So when I'd finished the novel, I realised that I wasn't quite finished with Elizabeth MacArthur. She was still, I was still waking up with her in my head every morning. So I thought, let's just sit down with the letters And just for my own interest, see what happens when I cut out all the bits that I just instinctively am not interested in. Let's see what I'm left with. And by the time I'd done that to a couple of them, I thought, yes, this is probably worth doing. It needs to be very clear that that's what I've done because it is a distortion of the letters. But it means that they will be accessible and interesting, I hope, to a general contemporary readership, which the originals, well, they're scholarly They're of scholarly interest. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. But, Kate, I'm struck by the fact, particularly now that I've been talking to lots and lots of biographers who value letters tremendously. In fact, biography seems to hinge either on diaries or letters or preferably both. Biographers do love letters as a resource, but not all letters are of equal weight and value. Some are more revealing than others. And it strikes me that because some of Elizabeth's letters were intended to be shared and read aloud between multiple members of the family and would have been passed around, etc. It means that some of what she's writing is quite performative. She's kind of putting on a very positive front or a bit of a spin on things. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Look, I would go much further than that and say that all her letters home are completely performative. And in fact, it's where I got interested when I realised that You read, after I'd read the blush letter way back in 2000, I then went and read some other letters of hers and I thought, this is remarkable. You would never think 
that she was in a place of utter tumult, rage, squalor, anger, you know, vibrant emotions. These letters are, they're not exactly prim, but they are, as you say, goody gumboil sort of letters. <laughs> and knowing, as I did, a fair bit about what it was actually like in Sydney in, you know, the late 18th, early 19th century, I thought these letters are actually fiction. She has constructed over her lifetime this fabulous fiction that everything is just hunky-dory. She's in the best possible place with the best possible husband and all is right with the world. And that's when I thought, ah, she's written the novel. I will now write or pretend to write the non-fiction. I will tell the truth that she was never able to tell. Oh, this is a very elaborate uh, spiral we're going into here. So in a way, what you're saying is that her fiction gave you permission for you to fictionalise her fiction. Exactly, exactly. I think she would be very, I think she's up there laughing along with me to what I've done. (laughs) Well, now, I'm really pleased that you used the word laughing because that was the thing that I really wanted to ask you about. I do think that some of the letters are, you used the word Prim. I would say some of her letters are quite staid. Do you think that she did actually have a sense of humour? Because I looked for a joke and I couldn't find one. <laughs> oh, that's a bit harsh. There are a few times. Um, there are a few times I'm trying to remember one. For example, when she, her son sent her some items uh, embroidered, it said, by the Queen. They were sold to raise money for a good cause. And, you know, she had a little thing that was embroidered supposedly by the Queen. And she makes some cutting comment about uh, how remarkable it is that, uh, you know, women should be basically wasting their time with this. But look, uh, you're right. She's not a particularly amusing writer, except in her letters to John Piper. The only letters, well, they're not exactly, they're not a laugh a minute, but what they do, I think, is indicate the sort of person she was. So, look, the sources that I had were her letters home, Mm. either to her old friend, the daughter of the clergyman, or to her mother, or her letters to John Piper, and they are completely different. It was so interesting to put them both in the same book because the letters home are very staid, as you say, Mm. and it's a very contrived voice. It's very much a literary voice. Here I am writing a letter. Whereas to Piper, you get the actual sense of what her spoken voice might have sounded like. They're dashed off. They're very short little notes about things that are happening. She knows that it will probably only be read by John Piper, not by a whole neighbourhood. And so you can sort of hear, perhaps not amusing, but I think that she indicates, I'm protesting too much here, aren't I? I'm trying to trying to make her amusing. I think she was. I think she was. <laughs> now, you see, I don't get that from the letters to John Piper, and I was going to come to John Piper later, but, but since you've mentioned him several times, we should introduce him, Captain John Piper. I'm intrigued by the fact that she writes to him so much. Who is this man and does he have a wife? Oh, <laughs> yes, he did. In fact, he was, I think, a bit of a womanizer. Ah. John Piper was a protege of Elizabeth MacArthur's husband. He was uh, some years younger than... Elizabeth, maybe seven or eight years, I can't remember offhand. Uh, So a younger man, an impetuous man who was constantly getting into trouble either for being extravagant or for being flirtatious with the wrong, or more than flirtatious perhaps, with the wrong woman, but extremely popular. He was very gregarious. He gave a good party. He built Mm. a fabulous house on Point, Point Piper, 
which is <laughs> obviously why it's called Point Piper. And he was kind of famous for giving parties. So he was, I think he was a, he was a party animal. He was fun to be with. So rather a dashing officer, was he an appropriate person for her to be writing to so frequently? Well, look, I did think that in reality she may have had an affair with William Dawes, which of course I have shown in the novel, which I think is not impossible. But if she did have an affair with somebody, John Piper would be the perhaps the most likely contender. The, uh, there's only one portrait of him as far as I know, and he was exceptionally prepossessing. He was not oh. a handsome not a handsome man at all, but the portrait may, may not have, may not do him justice. So, did you choose Dawes because Dawes was more interesting to you because of things like astronomy and his interest in the indigenous population, which again we'll come to later? Was it just that, in a way, would Officer Piper have been too much of a cliche as the sort of rather flashy, flamboyant flirt? Yeah, he didn't interest me much, and of course, I had already done an insane amount of research about William Dawes for writing The Lieutenant, which is a, a, a sort of a, a shallowly fictionalised version of uh, the William Dawes story. So I knew a lot about William Dawes and like a lot of other people, I am fascinated by him. He must have been, I think, a, a most rare and extraordinary man. And in fact, in early drafts of The Lieutenant, I had him well, he wasn't flirting with Elizabeth MacArthur, but she was most definitely flirting with him. I've got little, a couple of little scenes where she comes and asks him for the lessons in astronomy. But, of course, in those early drafts, William Dawes already had a convict mistress, which, in fact, is quite likely. So he wasn't interested. So it was a great delight to bring out those bits of the lieutenant, which I had, you know, filed away. I've got a, fo- I've got a folder called Good Bits to Use Later. <laughs> And it's always a huge pleasure to open it up and think, well, <laughs> this is later. <laughs> I can use it. Well, nothing wrong with a bit of good recycling. That's right. <laughs> so let me just go back to humour then, because one of the things where I do think you get sort of possibly an indication of humour is perhaps at times when I thought of Elizabeth as reading a little bit like Jane Austen, which is when she's writing to her friend back in England about whether she's being too choosy about suitable matches and does she really want to stay unmarried or could she not compromise a little bit on her standards? And there I did wonder whether she was being provocative or whether she was having a little bit of fun. Look, my own theory about that is that she knew that John MacArthur was quite likely to read whatever she wrote. So it's in that letter, I'm pretty sure, that she she says a lot of stuff about how you mustn't marry anybody that you wouldn't be happy with. You mustn't marry anybody who isn't, you know, worthy of you. But then she suddenly kind of changes her mind and in a sentence of quite extraordinary syntactical interest, it's full of double negatives. Yes. She says, basically she says, I couldn't be happier than with the husband that I have, but she insert so many negatives into that sentence to arrive at the positive that you have to wonder. There's a sort of cloud of negativity. And I think it's because either MacArthur had walked into the room or she suddenly remembered that they did read each other's letters before they were sent. So that's my that's my theory. Did they? That. They did that as a matter of course? Well, they certainly, most certainly did it several times because in one of her letters she actually quotes, she's she actually quotes verbatim a big chunk of one of John's letters rather than do it all herself. She's just copied it out. So, yes, I, I would think so. 
But don't you think that is a devoted wife in the thrall of, you know, this powerful man? Whereas what interest would he have had in womanly correspondence? John MacArthur was several things, and one of them was a man of control. He had to control every aspect of his life, which would most certainly have included his wife's correspondence, I'm sure, because, you know, his wife represented him and his wife was an extension of him. After all, we're talking the late 18th century when a woman had absolutely no rights, not over any part of her life, not over her children, not over her fertility, certainly not over her money, and not even over her body. There was no such thing, after all, as rape in marriage. So this is a woman with absolutely zero power and a man who loved control. So, yes, I think I think Elizabeth's whole life would have been constructed. The sort of fiction that I think she constructed was constructed in the same way Jane Austen constructed a, a sort of an ironic evasion, which was the woman's only weapon, an evasion of that overwhelming and unfightable with male power. Gee, that's absolutely fascinating. You do talk in the introduction to this collection of her doublespeak, and you also use the term to describe some of her writing. You say that she writes beautiful lies. That's quite strong, isn't it, to call some of that writing, whether it's ironic or tongue-in-cheek or omissions, significant omissions perhaps, to call that lying. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? Yes. Look, I think in the first draft, it probably wasn't quite that strong a word, but I had just read something that reminded me that Mark Twain had called Australian history beautiful lies. And I thought, okay, for those who might possibly pick that up, this will be a nice little thing. And it's it's not untrue. I mean, you can lie by omission. You can lie by a different tone. You can lie by a subtle choice of words. So, yes, I think lying is not overspeak. Okay, so let's just go back to I blush at my error because I am so fascinated that everything for you hinges on this. I blush at my error. Could that not be a woman saying, a, a modest woman saying, I got ahead of myself there. I thought that this person was interested in me and interested in teaching me. And actually, it turns out that I've embarrassed myself by imagining something that wasn't the case. Ah, look, she doesn't write in any sense that she was flirting with him. What she really is saying is, I was more stupid than I thought. I couldn't, astronomy is hard. I don't blame mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was. there's no sense that she was, that she's talking about a blush because she thought that some feeling might be returned and she's been humiliated by Dawes's indifference. I don't no, think she's, that's No, she's blushing at her own overreach intellectually, isn't That's she? right, exactly, exactly. Look, I can only say that it doesn't take much for a novelist <laughs> to take it with both hands, teeth and toes and run with it. it. It doesn't take that much. But I also think, you know, that word does leap out. Once you've read a lot of that 18th century stuff, In a woman's letter, that word does, I think, jump out at you. And I think it's a sense that, I mean, Freud Freud worked it out a century or so later, that our our choice of words can betray a very deep reality, which we ourselves are not aware of. So she would have thought, 
I'm simply telling Bridget that I'm blushing at how stupid I am and how I thought I was cleverer than I am, but some other part of her, this is the novelist in me, of course, is uh, is reading it in a in a more uh, well a more interesting way. Well, now this is the difference between your great imagination and my pedantic journalistic <laughs> approach. So I'm thinking to myself, surely a woman in that time did two things that we don't think about at all now. She blushed and she fainted. That was just what women did, right? They got overheated, they got embarrassed, they fanned themselves wildly, and then if the fanning didn't work, they fainted and someone had to bring the smelling salts. So to me, the blushing is of absolutely no consequence, which is why I'm pushing you yeah. so hard on this, okay. because I'm so fascinated. Yes, perhaps it's the context. I think it must be the context. It would be interesting to whip through our Jane Austen book and see how many times the word blush actually appears. In fact, I might go and do that after our conversation. Yes, I want to do that now too, Kate. I'm, I'm not sure you're right. But in any case, to talk about blushing in the, in the direct context of sitting down with a man, not your husband, and doing something quite... Well, learning about astronomy isn't intimate, but it would have meant sitting at the same table with the orrery that he had built for her, mm-hmm. which would require, you know, their heads would have been bent together over that orrery. So that's the context in which the word blush reminds you that these are not two minds. These are two bodies. Okay, now I'm liking this a lot more. The picture you're <laughs> painting there of those two heads bent, bent together, that to me has a kind of erotic depth charge where you've just detonated it for me straight away. Good, good. In a way that the blush, I'm still, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, not I'm open-minded about it. I just don't know. Yeah. Now, in parallel with all these letters that she wrote, Kate, would she have kept a diary? Would she have kept a diary as a matter of course? Do you imagine there was a diary and it's endlessly frustrating that, you know, it hasn't survived? What do you think? Uh I have a feeling she might not have kept a diary. I mean, she might have, and wouldn't it be fabulous if it turned up one day? Although when you look at the diaries, I've just actually looked at one by some 19th century lady, and it's about the weather and whether we went in and, and matched the ribbon. You know, it's it's, it's it's tedious, a waste of time, and to have published these things seems an incredible waste of time. But I think actually Elizabeth MacArthur was not a lady, and I think keeping a journal like that, a diary, a lady's diary, was a ladylike thing to do of a woman who didn't have enough to fill the day, whereas I think Elizabeth MacArthur was always extremely busy. Yes, she was. She was so competent and she was running things for the many years that her husband was away, and I'm going to come to that in a moment. So do you think, for example, that there might have been household ledgers or housekeeping books or books in which she documented the meals that were served to guests? I mean, what other paperwork can you imagine around these letters? Look, there may be some. There are, of course, accounts of the sheep, the sheep industry, or the sheep business, although I think not from her time. I didn't look at that in great detail. So there are a few things like that, but you're drawing on a kind of image of certainly gentry, if not minor aristocracy, people coming for formal dinners, at, which would be recorded and the menu would be recorded, perhaps even printed. That, this, this is not that world. This is this is Sydney in from 1790 onwards. And by the time by the time Sydney was big enough and genteel enough to have that kind of dinner parties, 
Elizabeth MacArthur had withdrawn to Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Farm because her husband was basically crazy or she was a woman alone looking after the place while he was away. So, look, there may well be that stuff and a proper, you know, proper historian of this time could probably tease out all kinds of fabulous stuff. I'm very aware of my limitations as a researcher and it does kind of astonish me in a way that the MacArthur's have not been, I mean, there's been a lot written about John MacArthur although I do wonder why his letters have not been published. And because I have wondered, I couldn't believe actually that Elizabeth MacArthur's letters have not been published in their full span. Little bits and pieces have been published, including by the extremely forward-thinking Joy Hughes, who back in 1980 could see that Elizabeth MacArthur was extremely interesting and she published some of them. Yeah, so look, there is always more to explore and I'm hoping some historians will get onto it and do it properly. Mm, mm. Well, let's come to her husband because the interesting part of the story for me there is that he was away for eight years dealing with the fallout from deposing Governor Bly and that's when she came into her own managing the property and doing so with a great degree of skill. I mean, she dispatched the first shipment of fine wool to Britain in 1812. It wasn't him, it was her. So can you talk a little bit about how she rose to the challenge of of running this wool empire? Yes, it's, it's what we learned about Elizabeth MacArthur at school, that she you know, ran the business in the absence of her husband. He was actually away for two periods of time. One was eight years, the other was five years. So, you know, that's a long time. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, we have all of John's letters to Elizabeth during both of those absences, but we do not have a single one of her letters to him, which in itself is, it's significant It's Mm. impossible to say why, you know, in what way, but it is interesting, isn't it, that so many Mm -hmm. letters were kept but not those. My My own theory, and I think it's quite plausible, is that in his late madness when John MacArthur thought that his wife was an adulteress, which, of course, as far as the novel is concerned, he was right, but by then he was so mad nobody listened, he did a lot of throwing out and burning of stuff, and I suspect that he burnt her letters in rage. Now, she strikes me as not only being very competent at running the business, but she's also quite competitive when it comes to the quality of her wool. She talks about her wool being better than anybody else's. She was clearly very proud of the quality of of the wool that she farmed. Uh, Yes. Look, I don't know that she was exactly competitive about it, although she may well have been. I mean, plenty of other people were breeding fine wool as well. And in fact, although John MacArthur took all the credit for it, and so did 150 years of our culture to give give him that credit. In fact, other people were actually breeding rather better merinos that were better suited to the Australian situation. And the merinos that we have now today, the Australian merino, is actually largely not from the John MacArthur sort of uh, line. Oh. Yeah. So, but that's by the by. And I don't know, don't ask me anymore because I don't know enough about sheep to go into detail. but No, I ha- don't worry, I won't because I've asked you everything I can ask you. <laughs> so I think, I think, look, my own feeling about it is she'd grown up on a farm which would have had sheep until she was six years old and at that point her father died. That would have been a huge trauma. So in a way I think sheep and farming were the sort of lost paradise from which she was expelled at the age of six 
because not only did the father die, they lost the property. It was entailed to a male relative. So she was kind of expelled from paradise. So I think part of her enormous pleasure in sort of looking at the sheep and the ducks and the vines was that long ago returning to her roots, really, of being a farmer. I think she would have been a very happy woman as a farmer. Am I right in thinking that in the novel you ascribe to her, because of that experience of growing up on a farm in Devon as a child, a kind of easy familiarity with the idea of breeding and with breeding for improving stock, that she was the one that deserves the credit for that kind of aspect of Mm. the quality of the wool? Look, what I've written in the book is what I think is plausible, which is that she knew a bit about it, but there were other people, probably convicts or ex-convicts, who worked on the property who have been lost to history because they were ex-convicts. So I've invented a sheep stealer. Now, there could be nobody more expert on sheep than somebody who's risked his neck by stealing one. So this sheep stealer comes to work for the MacArthur's and he and Elizabeth have a conversation in which they circle this idea of breeding the sheep in a particular way so that they're kind of like a lot of things. It's one of those things that neither of them might have come up independently with. I don't think Elizabeth MacArthur would have known a huge amount, although I have given her a grandfather who was what they call an improving farmer because, you know, sort of scientific breeding was a new thing at the end of the 18th century. So I've, I've given her a grandfather who did that. But in fact, she wouldn't have been a hands-on wool breeder. One of the most, I think, challenging and problematic aspects of this whole story and of Elizabeth is that once she's rich and established, her views on Indigenous people harden. And I can imagine that you would have found this difficult, but you don't judge her by today's standards. And I think that's really important. So it must have been difficult for you to read some of the things that she said about the Indigenous people. How did you navigate that? Look, I remember when I came across some of her shepherds were speared to death in 1824, I think, people that she would have known. And when I read the letter in which she describes that, She describes the First Nations people as savages uh, with absolutely no understanding of their point of view. And at that point, I remember very clearly, I can remember the bed that I was sitting up writing in, (laughs) the room that I was in. I thought, no, I'm not going to write this book. This woman is too, you know, I, I I don't want to live with somebody who has those thoughts. But then I thought, okay, this, this is the non-Indigenous Australian dilemma. We have this past and it's a very nasty one. We've smeared it over with pretty, pretty, pretty stuff for nearly 200 years. Now we have to go into it and actually own it. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth MacArthur is not me, but I thought, okay, she represents in a way the people that I come from. Uh, you know, I'm non-Indigenous. I have to walk into that and sit there with that and work out what to do with it. And it took me a long time in writing the novel to work out just how to do that. And what I've done is to give her an epilogue at the end of the book, as you would know, in which she has the insights that I think she 
people did, you know, non-Indigenous people then did realise that they were stealing the land and this was a, a very shocking and unforgivable thing to do. So I've given her that insight which she herself never expresses mm. because, look, I was interested in Elizabeth MacArthur but as with all my books, it's not really the past per se that I'm interested in, it's the present. But the present is the way it is because of the past. So I'm telling a story about today by writing about yesterday. So that's the sense in which I don't judge her really by anybody's standards, but what I'm trying to open up to understanding is today where we are. Yes, and that's what gives the book, I think, an extra dimension of power. Now, they do very well out of the sheep and they build themselves a very nice house and life is comfortable. I was struck by the fact, though, that Elizabeth does not display any kind of inclination towards charity. Now, wasn't it very much the case in Christian society that when you achieved a certain level of wealth and success, you were expected to become something of a philanthropist and to help those who were less fortunate. She's quite materialistic, but you never get any sense of that, of wanting to help the less fortunate. Ah, that's interesting. Look, I think to some extent that's true, although not completely. When Governor Macquarie started his school for, he probably called it school for native children, I've actually forgotten what it's called, Mm. she was on the board of that for quite some time. And she probably, because my book actually ends in about 1801, I didn't research in great depth her later life, but I suspect that she would have been involved with all the usual ladylike charitable things. I I think actually she probably would have. Okay. Because, yes, there's no indication in the period that you're writing about that she has a kind of moral conscience about doing that kind of thing later on. So maybe, as you say, it developed in another phase of life. Now, going back to John's illness, which, you know, you've described a little bit, this kind of manic behaviour, these sort of seesawing uh, roller coasters, rather, of depression and then manic behaviour, which then induced kind of frenzied activity around building and, you know, grandiose schemes and plans. He became violent. They had to live apart. What help did she get with his illness or Was it more important to her to keep it as quiet as possible? I mean, would his illness have been a source of gossip and scandal? Oh, definitely, yes. Because unfortunately, his illness took the form of, she describes in one of the letters, I'm not sure I used it, going out and talking to anybody. So everybody in Sydney knew that John MacArthur had gone mad, basically. Right. Uh, it It was common knowledge. There was no hiding it. And of course, she... She then became fairly unsociable and stopped visiting. But I have a feeling she hadn't ever enjoyed that much anyway. So in a way, it kind of gave her a bit of a pretext for no longer being out in society. It would have been, I think, one of her dilemmas was what to say to her sons about it because they were in England, at least for some of the time. And on the one hand, she wanted to let them know what was happening. But given that a letter took at least six months to get there and the reply another six months to come back, she could see that there wasn't much point worrying them. There wasn't anything they could do. So you can read in the letters that kind of thing. You can also read in the letters a kind of a desperate hope that things would come right because, after all, she's married to this man 
who appears to be physically extremely healthy, uh, who may well outlive her. She's yoked to him for life. So why didn't he, for example, Kate, end up in an asylum? Look, I think if he'd been less wealthy, he probably would have. As it is, he was basically locked up in the asylum of his own half-built mansion at Camden (laughs) Park with his sons and a whole string of, of employed people to care for him and probably prevent him either damaging himself or other people. There are references to the various men who were employed to, you know, to to lock him up. And he was several times restrained, which can only mean some version of a straitjacket. So it was was pretty confronting and shocking, I think, for Mm. everybody. Mm. And and she's very fortunate that they had the wherewithal that she could actually afford to live Mm. on a separate property away from him under another roof. Absolutely, yes. I mean, if they had not had that money, well, I mean, he threatened to kill her so they they couldn't go on living together. He said that she was an adulteress and he got out Mm. pistols and swords. His his children had been trying to poison him. His son-in-law was a doctor, so he was trying to poison him. And all these sort of violence delusions, it must have been absolutely unthinkably painful for her, whatever she felt about him, even if by that stage or if there had ever been love. You just, you know, mental illness is such a horrifying scourge Mm. and to be near it you would just do anything to make the person better. Absolutely. There would have been also enormous layers of shame and isolation, even if she wasn't very sociable by nature. It must have been very, very isolating. Finally, there's one more thing that lingers for me in these letters as a mystery towards the end of this collection. While all this is going on, there's something else going on. She says in one of her letters, I think, to her son Edward, that she has discontinued any correspondence with her relatives in Devon. And then she adds that she doesn't want the reader of this letter to think that that means that she's unmindful, that she doesn't care. What the hell is going on there? Look, here again, a historian who really knows how to do this stuff should have a look at all this. Elizabeth's mother had three different husbands and Elizabeth makes it clear that the last one, Mr Bond, she absolutely didn't didn't approve of. She calls him, I think, a leech, meaning that he's, he's, he's glomming onto her mother for what little bit of money she has. And one of those marriages resulted in a half-sister, Elizabeth's half-sister, uh, Isabella, and there again, a cloud of sort of shame and a sense of things go, having gone wrong, misjudgments, no money. I don't actually know what happened. Elizabeth and John sent them money, sent her mother money, and she made sure that her sister also had some money. So clearly her mother and her half-sister had sort of made very bad life choices, we would say now. <laughs> yes, we would. And... And just exactly what they were and why they resulted in Elizabeth no longer writing to them, I I don't know, but it would be fascinating to find out. It is tantalising, isn't it? It is, although, you know, most families, you know, it's it's, wherever there's a second marriage, there are complications. 
That is true. But you do think to yourself to cease communication when distance is already creating such a chasm between you is pretty kind of categorical. Just to go back to the issue of John MacArthur and his mental health, would it have occurred to Elizabeth, I'm just thinking about the breeding of sheep, would it have occurred to Elizabeth as a fear, do you think, that her husband's mental illness could be passed on down the line generationally? What an interesting idea. No, I hadn't thought about that. It's because so little was understood about genetics. I mean, the whole concept really wasn't wasn't thought of at all. Okay. So, uh, look, the short answer is I don't know, but it, it's not impossible. Look, Kate, it's been wonderful talking to you about the acrobatics and the sort of elasticity that the novelist's mind can bring to the facts, to make the facts so much more ambiguous <laughs> and so much richer in the process. It's, it's been a really wonderful thing to talk to you today. Thanks. It's been wonderful talking to you. Your questions have often put me on the, on the spot, which is always a good place to be. <laughs> I don't think Kate and I are ever going to agree about the meaning of that phrase, I blush at my error, but it was fun tussling the point with her. I wonder how the biographers of the future will go analysing 21st century digital correspondence, which is so different in content, tone and length. Finally, a bit of great news. I'm delighted that Bernadette Brennan has won the Megari Medal for her outstanding biography of Gillian Mears, Leaping into Waterfalls, which featured in an earlier podcast. It's also been shortlisted for the National Biography Award, which will be announced this month. Thanks for listening to Life Sentences. If you like us, please leave us a review wherever you listen. And if you'd like to suggest a biography I should feature, please get in touch via my website or social media. The series is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media on Darawal Country. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>